You're listening to the Inside Nature Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Olson, digital producer for nature. In this episode, we're talking about the vaquita, the smallest porpoise in the world, and at this point, the most endangered. Last year, a scientific survey determined there were only about 30 vaquita left in the wild, down from the 60 or so found in the previous year. With such low numbers, the species appears to be teetering on the edge of extinction. And now scientists are developing a daring rescue plan to remove the remaining vaquita from their home in the Gulf of California. To get some background on the situation and more details on the rescue, I spoke to conservation biologist Barbara Taylor. Taylor is a scientist with NOAA's Southwest Fisheries Science Center in La Jolla, California, and has been studying the vaquita for more than 20 years. She is also part of the group which will attempt to remove the species from the wild in order to save it. Barbara, I'd like to welcome you to the Inside Nature podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. So for listeners that aren't familiar with the vaquita, could you just tell us a little bit about the species? For example, what do they eat, where they live, and uh, why they're so small? Well, vaquitas are a porpoise, and a porpoise differs from a dolphin in that it doesn't have a beak like a like flipper. It looks more like a teeny tiny version of a killer whale with a with a blunt forehead, and they have a very nice makeup job. They've got <laughs> sort of a, a black lipstick and black rings around their eyes. Very lovely little uh, slender porpoise. And there are seven species of porpoises, and of those, uh, vaquitas are the smallest ones, but they're also the only ones that live in the desert. They'll eat any small fish, and they use really high echolocation to find their food, so about 10 times higher than bats. Um, and that gives them an advantage in being able to find these little tiny fishes in waters that because they're produced productive are also very murky. Mm. You can't really see through them. Um, They mature when they're about four, and they only have one calf about every two years. So they're very slow reproducers, Uh um, which makes them especially vulnerable. And vaquita are even more vulnerable because they only live in a very small area in the very northern Gulf of California. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're naturally a very shy animal, so they avoid motor noise. And uh, they're so hard to see that a lot of the fishermen for many years have have referred to them as mythical animals. (laughs) But of course, they're they're not mythical. They're they're real purposes, but they are difficult to see. Right, and so I take it you've been working on with them for twenty years. I mean, you've seen them in in real life, or are they do they even evade your uh, your eyes? No, they can't evade, evade my eyes because I use twenty five power binoculars on big ships. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, we we have to to look for them in very special ways um, so that we can see them far enough out that they don't detect the vessel noise and we can actually see the animals. And I've been on all of the surveys that have been done for vaquitas, and we've we've done three of them, and I've had the, the misfortune of watching this species disappear from uh, 600 of them around 1997, uh, and our last big survey was in 2015, and there were... Uh, about 60 of them. Wow. Um, Okay, so that's a good segue. So um, uh, according to a New York Times article that I read from the end of April, 
there may only be a few individuals left. Uh, would you would you agree with that? And do we actually know how many vaquita are left? And if so, how do we know that? So the recent New York Times article um, said there were only two to four individuals left last February, and and that's certainly not accurate. Mm. Um, we don't know how many there are now, although we're remarkably good at uh, monitoring this really rare and cryptic species. So I had the, the misfortune of being on the survey that went to the Yangtze River and failed to find the Yangtze River dolphin. Um, we were there to try to take the last of them into protective uh, sanctuaries, and we were too late. And a species that has been here for 30 million years is, was already extinct. And so we came back with uh, renewed uh, fervor about improving our ability to monitor vaquitas. And mm-hmm. so in 2008, we went out, we did another one of these big, expensive ship surveys, they cost about $3 million, and so we only do them every 10 years. And with a critically endangered species, that's just not frequent enough. And so we use their uh, compulsive echolocating um, to be able to develop an acoustic monitoring method. And we have a grid of about 45 uh, detectors that we put out in Bakita habitat every summer, Uh and we get about 3,000 days worth of data. So we. So you're another... so you're so you're basically listening to to them talk or listening to them finding food. We're listening to them finding food. Yes, yeah. and and you know I I liken it to you know if you were uh, below a stage and there were a group of flamenco dancers that were tapping away above you, you know, and half of them walked off the stage, you'd be able to tell that just by you know the auditory clue that you're getting right. half the number of detections. And that's basically exactly what happened between 2015 and 2016 was we went out and did one of these big surveys in 2015. We estimated there were about 60 left. We continued with our acoustic monitoring, but now it was calibrated. Mm-hmm. And when we got half the number of clicks, we uh, determined that there were half the number of Akitas, uh, which meant that Last summer, we were down to about 30. Oh, wow. And that, that decline from 60 to 30 um, happened despite the fact that the government of Mexico had uh, heeded our warnings from the acoustic monitoring, which detected this um, enormous decline that was happening because of the resumption of an illegal fishery for a species called a totuaba, which is a big fish. Mm-hmm. also endangered, and its swim bladder is worth a tremendous amount of money uh, on the Chinese black market. Right. And without the acoustic monitoring, we never would have known uh, the extent of the consequences for vaquita. And so Mexico stepped up, put in a, a two-year gillnet ban, um, and you know everyone was very hopeful that that and stepping up enforcement, putting the Navy in charge um, would, you know, make the difference and turn the corner for, for vaquitas. But unfortunately, um, that year that I just told you about from 2015 to 2016, where we went from 60 to 30, was post-ban. Right, so right. we haven't seen any evidence that um, the 
the decline in vaquita is slowing down, and, and the Sea Shepherd Society has been out there um, pulling up illegal nets, and we are still seeing um, hundreds of illegal nets for this uh, large fish, the totoaba, that are also killing vaquita. And in fact, just in the last month, we had another five dead vaquita. So we know that they're still declining out there and that when we go out um, to try to capture them, that there will be even fewer than there were last summer. Right. Um, And that's obviously a very sad situation. Um, So let's talk a little bit about gill nets, which are the the primary killer of vaquita. So for our audience, these are long vertically hanging nets that that ensnare any sea life that comes in contact so my question for you barb is you know with this ban in place by the mexican government why haven't they been able to stop this type of fishing well let me back up a little bit and say that gill nets are a global problem Mm -hmm. Um, they're the greatest threat to marine mammals globally they kill hundreds of thousands of marine mammals a year And we don't have any positive examples where any government has been able to substitute alternative fishing gear for gill nets. Um, And so it's a a very difficult problem. And Mexico is to be complimented for trying to uh, bring uh, regulations to bear on the legal fishery. Mm -hmm. The problem in, in this case was it's twofold. One is they stopped the legal fishing with using gill nets. And by the way, they're used for shrimps and other fishes. And they compensated those fishes to the tune of $72 million to stop fishing for this two-year period with the idea that they would actually develop alternative gears that the fishermen could still go out and make a living but not use the gill nets. And it would have been the first positive example we have of doing something like this in the world. Meanwhile, we have this illegal fishery um, for totoaba that's going on. And to give you some idea of how uh, tempting this is, um, it's called the cocaine of the sea. Mm. And it is more valuable than cocaine. Uh Um, And so the fishermen are willing to take uh, risks. And in in this case, um, no one's been put in prison. The fines have been relatively minor. Um, And we know that, you know, this fishing is going on. They set the nets at night with no markers. And so you have this illegal fishery that is um, one of the big causes for, you know, the decline of Vaquita was going along at 8% and it jumped up to 34% per year. Mm. And that was driven by this illegal fishery. And so now you have a situation that's tantamount to controlling illegal drugs. And we all know how successful governments are doing that. Um, You know, on top of this sort of more technical problem, but still a very difficult one. It's, you know, really taking... It's how these villages make their living. So you have to have a tremendous amount of social change and you have to have sustained governmental will and some real leadership to make it happen. So your group, which is called the International Committee for Vaquita Recovery, has recommended removing the remaining vaquita from the Gulf of California to save the species. How would this be done and and how did your group come to this conclusion? 
Well, it was it was hard for us to to come to that conclusion. It's a very drastic um, effort and one filled with uncertainties. Uh, we all understood once we saw the results from the acoustic monitoring that they were declining at 34% per year that we we weren't winning with plan A and we had to get a plan B in order and the team just this a few weeks ago um, finally admitted that you know the only way that the species was going to be saved was in this Hail Mary operation to try to take some animals, as many as possible, Mm -hmm. um, into captivity as quickly as possible. So there's been another group of expertise brought online. Um, There's an effort that's called Vaquita CPR, that is Vaquita Conservation Protection and Recovery, Mm -hmm. and it involves a host of different uh, players and skills, uh, players all the way from Hong Kong all the way to Denmark and the Netherlands um, that are bringing uh, all of these different skills from veterinary care and engineering and you know all sorts of things that we haven't had to deal with before um, rapidly to the table. Everyone has been extremely cooperative and We've just um, secured enough funding that we can uh, get the facilities ready because, of course, if we're successful with capturing animals, we have to be able to safely take care of them. And so we've outlined a whole plan. Um, We hope to go out in October and November um, and undertake, uh, as I say, finding them, being able to track them um, mm-hmm. and being able to catch them and and then being able to take care of them. And, and all of those things are um, formidable tasks. Do you know at this point what, you know, how they would be held? Is there, uh, you know, is it, would it be sort of sequestered from the rest of the Gulf or would they be completely separated from the Gulf? Well, let me back up a little bit mm-hmm. and talk about the the finding and the tracking because that part is is interesting in and of itself. So yeah. we plan to go out in um, in the summer when we usually do the acoustic monitoring, do a full acoustic effort to sort of pin down where the animals, how many there are, and where they're spending their time, and then we'll go out with. Um, more than just one visual vessel, three visual vessels this time to try to be able to not only find these needles in the state, in the in the haystack, but to be able to track them. And in order to uh, give us the best chance possible of following these, you know, really small, solitary animals, um, we're uh, going to be using Navy dolphins oh, wow. um, that are, will be the Mexican uh, government asked the U.S. government uh, to help out by providing the skills of the Navy dolphins. So the Navy dolphins have, are being trained to uh, follow porpoises and so that we can keep track of where the porpoises are going and then uh, be able to uh, run nets around them and uh, capture the animals. Okay. And that, and that, again, involves all these skills, specialized nets, specialized uh, skill sets from, you know, s- several parts of the world. And then what we hope to do initially is to have tuna pens that are right out there next to the capture operation so mm-hmm. that we can minimize the, um, 
you know, I'm sure it will be a very exciting thing for a vaquita to be handled. No one, no one has ever handled one before. And mm-hmm. the first thing that the veterinarians will have to determine is whether they're like harbor porpoise that react very well to being handled and, and kept in captivity or like a doll's porpoise, which is a, a porpoise that lives out in the open ocean. And when you capture doll's porpoise, they just start to go into shock and they they just don't react at all well. So we don't know what they'll be like. Um, we're hoping that because they're shallow coastal water animals like harbor porpoises, that they'll behave like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, having these big floating open ocean tuna pens right there so that we can put the animals into these pens and and make it as an, as easy a transition for them as we possibly can. Um, and then, of course, the next step, if they do well there, is to see whether or not you can get them to eat dead fish. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a very steep learning curve for both the vaquitas and the veterinarians. Um, and then if they do well there, um, we can transfer and they're, they're going to build sea pens uh, close to the village of San Felipe um, that will be able to uh, have uh, walkways that go into land and then they'll have uh, pools on land for uh, uh, veterinary care on land as well. So would, would the ultimate goal be to set up some sort of breeding program that you could restore a certain number of individuals or how would that work? Well, the team realized pretty early on that um, like all animals that are taken into captivity for the first time, uh, you learn a lot from mm-hmm. the animals early on. And you need to learn the vaquita's needs um, before you get very far down um, into the planning details. But I think the recovery team recognizes that this situation of the uh, vaquita habitat basically being toxic right now, I mean, very deadly for the animals, it's not likely to change uh, very quickly. And so we are looking at keeping these animals probably for decades. Mm-hmm. And of course, we we hope that we can uh, encourage them to, to make more baby vaquitas. Um, uh, there certainly has been reproduction uh, in both harbor porpoises and finless porpoises. So um, we're hopeful there. Uh, but I think the first uh, year or so, we'll just be learning from the animals uh, what kind of habitat makes them happy. Right. I guess my final question for you is, you know, you're, you are a scientist, you, you study these things, but you have to say, you know, remain somewhat removed from them. But do you do you feel hopeful about this situation? Do you think there is a way out or there is a way that the vaquita can, can survive? Well, you know, it is truly a, a Hail Mary situation. And I think, you know, we're going to go out there and do our best for these animals. We've assembled a tremendous uh, team of people to do that. We've had tremendous support from the government of Mexico to to make this happen, um, and you know that that's the most that we can do as a conservation biologist. I think it's really important to learn from these uh, lessons, even the sad lessons. Um, you know, if you're going to have a hope of of saving other species, you have to take advantage of lear- learning everything that you can from every one of your failures and. 
and we did that with, you know, the Yangtze River dolphin. Um, and, you know, we certainly did not lack on the science for uh, vaquitas. But I think one of the real lessons here is that as hard as it may seem, um, you know, this is not going to be a standalone situation. I think there's a lot of, if you want to have, you know, dolphins and porpoises in coastal waters, we're going to have to get serious about either really making some strong commitments to change human behavior so that we aren't wiping out all of our top predators with with gill nets, mm-hmm. or we're going to have to get a lot better at, at building the ark, you know, of, of taking these species and getting them through this, what we hope is a, a bad a couple of decades in in human development and so that we have some left um, for when we get past this this hard hard time on planet earth that was barbara taylor conservation biologist and vaquita expert you can learn more about the vaquita on our website at pbs.org nature we'll feature a background article on our homepage after publication of this podcast And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the Inside Nature podcast on SoundCloud. You can find our channel at soundcloud.com slash naturepbs, all one word. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, I'm Eric Olson.